0: The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights, all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, a very warm well welcome to Squawk Box this Tuesday morning. Let's give you some headlines. The Nasdaq driving gains stateside, breaking a two-day losing streak. This, as the U.S. Treasury says, it will review the proposal for a tech partnership between Oracle and TikTok. Surprising to the upside, Chinese retail sales rise for the first time this year, and industrial production comes in ahead of expectations as the recovery continues to improve. UBS chairman Axel Weber reportedly planning a mega merger with Credit Suisse in a bid to create a wealth management and investment banking giant. FCA and PSA shift gears on their tie-up, revising the terms of their merger to cut the special dividend and postpone a spin-off as the COVID crisis weighs. Plus, wild weather lashing the United States, with fires across Western America prompting clashes between President Trump and Democrat rival Joe Biden, whilst Hurricane Sally moves across the Gulf towards the southern state's coastline. Okay, uh, selling May and go away didn't work for those of you who held the market over the summer. You actually had a pretty good time, but you're enduring a very torrid September so far. September is historically, of course, a torrid month and continues to be so across various Asset classes from WTI to these markets, U.S. indices actually had a strong rally. Uh, You'll notice the Nasdaq, which was considerably out of form last week, uh, had a very good session yesterday, if you were long, 1.9 percent to the good. We spent a lot of time looking at upside call options in various tech stocks as well. Well, one stock which did very well yesterday was Tesla, which has had a lot of questions raised about it in the last week or so with some precipitous declines followed by some extreme volatility, 48 points of that 203 you can see on your screen uh, from the Nasdaq was down to Tesla alone. Let's have a look at Tesla plus a couple of the other individual tech stories as well. Well, Oracle. Well, what is happening with Oracle uh, and TikTok as well? A lot of questions remain about them. We have got a guest coming up in a few moments time, but safe to say a special partnership, as far as I can see, is not a sale of U.S. assets. Uh, And we've got some sound on this from uh, the Treasury Secretary as well on what the government is going to do next regarding this as well. Um, We did see a very big rally on small and mid cap stocks as well. The Russell Two. Okay, We've got a three-month chart for you just to show, again, the oscillation you've seen in the early part of September. You can see on the right-hand side of your screen a decent-sized decline, followed by the move yesterday. In fact, I don't think we put up any levels on that, have we? Maybe we should do that next time we use it. But up 2.65% was the move we saw yesterday. Uh, US futures look like this. So a an incline continuing uh, at the start of trading. Opening calls for European markets. Good gosh. Isn't it amazing when they give such wonderful decimals? exactly 6.8 points down for the 40. exactly 6.8 down for the FTSE MIB. I, th- I think, to be fair, to get that level of accuracy is quite stunning, and it doesn't actually exist, but uh, there you go. It's a slightly negative bias. Now, Asian indices, um, some really, really interesting stuff going on at the moment, and I will draw your attention to the Shenzhen Composite, up five-tenths of 1%, and the Shanghai Composite. And the Hang Seng five tenths of 1% higher as well. The Nikkei 225 really quite honestly ignoring um, the elections to create a new leader of the LDP. And of course, the prime ministership as well. Uh, It's doing its own thing at the moment, isn't it? But it's down 94 points as we speak. Now, what is really of interest to me is the Chinese data. We mentioned it in the headlines. Chinese retail sales rose by 0.5% in August, growing for the first time this year first time this year, uh, and beating analyst expectations. Industrial output in the world's second largest economy accelerated to 5.6%. That is the fastest rate in eight months. Uh, Sam. The authorities have put a lot of store in getting the economy back up and going. They put a lot of financial um, firepower behind it as well. But these data across the board, and there's more data below as well, which I know you've been looking at as well, look very strong unambiguously. Or is there something we should be considering when we're looking at these figures? Good morning.
1: Good morning to you, Steve. Well, I think this data out today tells us a few things. Firstly, uh, that the economy is managing to bounce back from the impact of the coronavirus perhaps quicker than expected because all three of these economic indicators actually beat forecasts today. But it also uh, tells us that this recovery now is becoming more consumer-led than the fixed asset investment, sort of suggesting that there is perhaps some pent-up demand now. And that is because, as you mentioned, the retail sales actually grew for the first time this year. Now, of course, we know that consumption really has been lagging this recovery in China uh, throughout the year amid these lingering worries about pay and jobs, but also the virus forcing many people to tighten their belts, even as we have seen shops and restaurants uh, reopening. And so this really does suggest that uh, consumer confidence is picking up. And we have seen evidence of that through uh, that jump in auto sales in August. So this really is a sign now that Chinese consumers are more willing to part with their cash. But I would say uh, that you know while this is a positive sign, these are nowhere near numbers that we're used to seeing in China. This time last year, we were looking at retail sales of seven to eight percent year on year. So I think really, if the Chinese consumer is anything to go by in this recovery, we may have a while to go still to we see uh, you know a full recovery. And particularly as those unemployment numbers still remain relatively high. Uh, they only fell one tenth of a percent from July uh, last month. So uh, China's industrial output. as you mentioned, expanded for the fifth straight month. So really continuing uh, to give the economy a boost. And uh, that is certainly as more businesses have been resuming production. The industrial output side of things has really been leading this recovery. And that is thanks to, you know, this domestic demand holding up well as we've seen more government uh, support for infrastructure projects, which have been used to really alleviate some of these external pressures like the virus and pressures from the US. The uh, fixed asset investment fell 0.3% for the first eight months of the year, so still a negative reading there, but it is an improvement from the first seven months of the year, and uh, officials have said that that really is largely thanks to some government support as well. Uh, investment in manufacturing was weak week ago, but we have, again, we have so seen investment uh, in high-tech um, education and healthcare looking strong amid this pandemic, but also in the face of a lot of this US pressure. So, I think, as you rightly pointed out, uh, this data does suggest that this has been uh, a really government stimulus-led recovery in terms of the domestic demand, and that really does, um, you know, show to be consistent with this dual circulation strategy that the government has been talking a lot about lately, which is uh, about focusing and prioritising supporting the domestic uh, economy rather than relying so much on exports. And I think, you know, this also does suggest today this data um, that perhaps we will see, you know, this continued effort of a more flexible, and targeted approach by the Chinese central bank when it comes to stimulus to really help parts of the economy that need it the most, and particularly as we head into this big Chinese holiday in October. Steve, back to you.
0: Uh, Excellent work. Thank you very much indeed for that, Sam. So let's stick with the uh, US-China relations theme. The US Treasury Department is reviewing ByteDance's proposal to have Oracle act as TikTok's trusted technology partner. The Chinese social media giant said it believes the tie-up will address the Trump administration's security concerns ahead of the deadline for the U.S. ban on September 20th. The Treasury Secretary, Steven Mnuchin, first confirmed the move to CNBC whilst pledging to keep American data safe.
2: We did get a proposal over the weekend that includes Oracle as the trusted technology partner with Oracle, making many representations for national security issues. Uh, There's also a commitment to create TikTok Global as a U.S. headquartered company with 20,000 new jobs. I'm not going to go into the entire proposal. We will be reviewing that at the CFIUS committee this week, and then we'll be making a recommendation to the president and reviewing it with him.
0: There you go, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. Right, Spiro Kosanos joins us, founder of Fuse Venture Partners. Spiro, thank you very much indeed for joining us, sir. Well, very basically, what do you think of this
3: deal? Well, obviously, you don't know the details, Steve, but, um, I mean, if you look at how we got here, um, there was a difficult situation in that Trump had declared his executive order, which gave the companies and the company till September the 20th. Um, and China, on the other hand, um, added recommendations to its export review list um so the parties were in a difficult situation if you're an investor in uh, in ByteDance, uh, of which there are some you know significant us vc firms you'd have to find some kind of a solution so um we don't know the intricacies of the deal but uh the, the problem that was faced by the business was if you strip out the algorithm from the company uh and and us business becomes an independent business um a lot of the value is lost. You know, these recommendation engines take a uh, you know have the significant uh, value to the businesses of these kind of uh, personalized properties. Um, and on the other hand, if Oracle didn't, uh, if Oracle had to rebuild the recommendation engine from scratch, uh, it would lose a lot of value. So otherwise, Oracle would have to have like a long term license. Uh, with with dance which is probably not the best. So um, and overall for bytedance that you know separating the business would be a, a loss of value for shareholders. Um, so ultimately this appears to be some kind of a partnership, Steve, which involves probably it looks like two elements. One is that Oracle becomes the secure server provider uh, for um, user, US user data uh, and secondly there's some kind of a minority investment. So now I think there are ways that Oracle can secure us data. Um, and i'm sure those things are being considered
0: yeah look you make the point that separating the us operations from the core parent platform is not easy the algorithm is proprietary code and the historical data its value is in the billions so does this satisfy the administration's concerns and create a, a a situation for oracle where they can actually still monetize this aggressively
4: I think it does, Steve. So um, you know Oracle is uh, potentially a little bit behind in the server market. Uh, this deal reportedly would increase its cloud services business by you know t- potentially ten percent uh, versus you know something more like two to five percent if it was Microsoft. Uh, so it is a big win for um, Oracle uh, in terms of securing uh, the provision of the data to to bytedance. So it boosts its cloud services business. And, uh, there are ways that it can protect, uh, U.S. user data. It separates the algorithm, uh, from U.S. user data and the data and anonymizes the data before it gets uh, injected into the algorithm. So yeah, I think that, uh, you know, Oracle gets a good deal here, increases its cloud storage business. Um, at the same time as, you know, the, the Trump administration getting protection of its, uh, of U.S. data, uh, China, uh, uh, doesn't, uh, hinder the export of the algorithm and, you know, by stance shareholders, you know, US investors, uh, many of them, uh, you know, get their value particularly in the company.
0: Spiro, uh, my colleague Juliana joins us now. So Juliana, take it away.
2: Thanks so much, Steve. Aspiro, great to speak with you this morning. I I guess the the crux of the issue here is whether Oracle would, in fact, be in charge of the data in this new deal structure. Based on what we know so far, would they um, be able to have control over handling the data, controlling how it's stored, controlling how it's used?
3: So obviously... um... We, I don't know we don't know the deal the details of the deal but uh, there are ways um you know we have structured deals like this as, uh, as investors many times and there are ways to have essentially, the US user data um, segregated um, and, you know, essentially anonymized uh, and and you give it a unique identifier. So, you know, your personal data would be, you know, user ABC and is injected into the algorithm. The algorithm, you know, spits out the the relevant uh, 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 distribution that would come to your personalized uh, app. Um, but, you know, never does the algorithm actually see who you are and it cannot relate and identify who you are. Uh, so there are means to do that, and, and there are ways that uh, essentially, you know, ByteTance can have its uh, algorithm in a black box, uh, which is, you know, encrypted and secured so that it also doesn't lose its proprietary IP, which would hurt not only ByteTance, which is, uh, uh, you know, albeit a Chinese company, it has many U.S. You know, or, and international VC investors in the shareholder table.
2: Spiro, if we look more broadly at the United States and the way they handle data, they don't have blanket regulation the way we do in Europe with GDPR, which sets out rules for how data is controlled and governed throughout the region. Do you think that this case of TikTok will propel the U.S. to go down that path and implement a type of regulation that we've seen here in Europe?
3: Interesting question. So uh, I'm not a, a political commentator, but I would say that, you know, as investors uh, in technology and technology companies like a stable framework within which they can run their businesses and investors can invest. Um, so, you know, it, this is an instance where obviously there was an urgent need and an executive order has has been made. Uh, but obviously uh, executive orders are um, uh, 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 not ideal in the longer term, we'd like a more stable regime, a framework within which we invest and how data, data is managed. Um, so to that extent, you know, the U.S. has a, a patchwork of, of, of privacy laws. Um, you know, and other you know localization laws, are very to a very limited extent. Um, the EU has potentially more protections, um, and and having some form of regular, stable framework within which uh, you know what, where we know what the rules are, companies can navigate the, uh, the uh, and plan ahead. Um, uh, what what would be the circumstances? You know how they have to hold their data, etc. Helps investors a lot, and helps uh, tech companies a lot to plan uh, and on in a you know, rule.
0: Based manner. Spira, if there is going to be longer term trans-Pacific tension about IP, about technology, and we do see uh, an emergent splinter net, so to speak, as well, is there an opportunity to buy companies that will uh, be on the other side of the divide from Chinese technology that previously you thought wouldn't have a competitive case, i.e. rivals to the likes of Huawei, for instance?
3: Uh, That's an interesting question. Uh, look, I think that uh, it, it'd be better to avoid a situation where we have what you call a split internet. Um, you know, fragmenting the internet into separate regions and silos uh, is not ideal for business. Um, so, you know, I prefer to uh, hope that we'll find a a, a good resolution of this. Um, you know, potentially. Uh, if you look at, for example, in the EU, the EU, there was a court case recently, uh, which actually found that, uh, in certain instances, the US data protection laws are not sufficient for, to match the EU's, so, uh, uh, requirements. So it's actually an issue which has to be uh, addressed worldwide. Um, and, uh, you know, the sooner that, uh, all, all countries and regions, you know, think about the measures, uh, that have to be in place and the reciprocity from other countries and continents, uh, that rules get, uh, the most ability we'll have in, in, in technology trading and investing.
2: Spiro, we're going to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Spiro, Corsano's founder, Fuse Venture Partners. Coming up on the show, the creation of a Swiss banking giant. We look into reports that Credit Suisse and UBS are considering a massive merger.
0: And for more on whether President Trump will approve the TikTok Oracle partnership, check out the Box podcast. We'll be back Okay, Fiat and Peugeot, uh, Fiat Chrysler and PSA are revising the terms of their planned merger due to the pandemic in a move that will cut FCA's special dividend and delay a PSA spin off. Charlotte has more. Good morning, Charlotte.
5: Good morning, Steve. Well, we had this communiqué led last night from the two companies talk in mentioning how they renegotiated the terms of their merger. And uh, the key point here is that special dividend, dividend, that 5.5 billion euro special dividend that SCA was supposed to pay to its shareholders as part of the deal with PSA. And that was really a sticking point in this post, in this COVID world because, of course, this was agreed before uh, the health crisis. Uh, this was really a difficult sticking point uh, in the current environment. And there was this report um, reports that PSA was very keen for this to be renegotiated, for FCA to hold on to cash, of course, to deal with this new uh, trading environment. There was also a political element there with FCA uh, asking for state uh, guaranteed loans in Italy as well. So there was a political pressure there to um, give up on this special 5.5 billion euro special dividend. So now they have announced that this has been renegotiated. Of course, the key element was whether the Agnelli family, one of the main shareholders, the main shareholder of FCA, would accept to cut down their share in this deal. Well, what this has been done now, they can add to 2.9 billion euros. There are also other announcements as part of the communiqué yesterday. They also said that both companies will consider a potential distribution of 500 million euros to each company before the merger, or one billion after the merger, depending on trendi- trading conditions. Uh, PSA, as well, you know, uh, own a uh, 40% stake in Foresia, uh, and uh, they were supposed to spin off uh, this stake to its own shareholders now this spinoff will be done to half psa shareholders and half fca shareholders and they've also as part of this communique said that they have revised their synergies uh, there was expected to be at around 3.7 billion euros and now see them at over 5 billion euros so all um, all these new terms here mentioned yesterday they confirmed that they expect to complete the merger by the end of the first quarter of 2021 so here Good news because this is one of these mega deals that was agreed before the COVID crisis and we've seen many of them collapse. So here this renegotiation of the terms uh, seem to indicate that this is still very much on track and they confirm here their calendar to complete in the first quarter of 2021. Finally, remember that uh, this deal is still under the EU uh, Commission investigations, that in-depth investigation over their small vans business and what it means for competition in Europe. We expect from the Commission to hear in October on this specific part uh, here together the green line on this deal, but here companies are confirming their calendar for their mergers. So Again, good news. One of these mega deals that may still see, um, that we may still go through um, d- despite this COVID crisis, guys.
0: Uh, excellent work. Thank you very much indeed. Well, there are two reasons to do uh, an MA deal out there, aren't they? One is offense to grow your business aggressively. Two is defense to shore up what is a weaker market hand. It's arguable whether FCA and Peugeot are doing the latter, i.e. shoring up what is a very very difficult hand. And it's arguable whether the next two potentially are going to do the same as well. UBS chairman Axel Weber has reportedly drawn up a plan to merge the bank with its rival Credit Suisse. Now, I've got to caveat this. This is so early stages. Uh, it's first reported in a Swiss blog, which is called Inside Plaza, which of course is uh, in downtown Zurich. Sources claim a deal could be struck in early 2021 and would put 15,000 jobs at risk. The blog also said Weber has made the Swiss banking regulator and the country's finance minister aware of the plans as well. And Juliana, before I bring you in on this one as well, uh, I've just been looking at various factors including the valuations of these stocks uh, and indeed. The um, share of activity they have in IB, and I'll, if you'll indulge me, I'll just go through the facts and some of the valuations. For instance, uh, on a PE basis going forward, Credit Suisse trades at 7.86, compared with uh, a mean industry average of between 13 and 15 times forward. Uh, and it's a very similar story at UBS as well, which trades on 9.7 times forward as well. Uh, the price to books on these companies as well is also pretty underwhelming, at around about 0.5 for Credit Suisse and 0.8 for uh, the likes of UBS. But it's In terms of their fee structure compared with their US rivals, that makes a sobering reading. Bearing in mind, UBS and Credit Suisse are such strong European players on a global basis. They don't even figure on some of these levels. In fact, when one looks, and I'm using FT data for this as well, when one looks at global investment banking, bonds, equity, mergers and acquisitions, loans, the top player time after time after time is either JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs or Bank of China in some ways uh, or Mizuho Financial or HSBC or when it comes to Hong Kong as well. Uh, And when you look at the broader trends as well in terms of the top 10 globally. Well, I can tell you the top five banks are Goldman, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, Citi, Morgan Stanley. Only then do we find Credit Suisse coming in at number six and UBS doesn't rank in the top 10. Sobering reading for two of the biggest investment banks in Europe. Juliana.
2: No, it certainly is, Steve. I mean, we've been following for so long how European banks have been under huge pressure to cut costs. They're dealing with a negative interest rate environment. And as a result, as you've just laid out with all of those numbers, that European banks are lagging the US when it comes to scale in investment banking. And this would be a logical move from that perspective to combine the investment banking units of these two Swiss giants. But beyond that, it feels like analysts are skeptical from a regulatory perspective that this deal could go ahead. It could pave the way for more cost cuts. But again, that begs the question of can European banks cost cut their way to growth, which has been a huge issue in recent years. Uh, If they did combine their investment banking businesses, perhaps that would help as well. But this seems like a difficult deal to get across the line, especially before we have a complete banking union here in Europe. And I know this is a priority for certain European leaders, but it still feels like there's a long way to go in terms of getting that across the line. Madame Lagarde raised it in the ECB last week that one of her big ambitions for the region is to get a complete banking union, but it still feels very far away.
0: Yeah. And I wonder about the shareholders too as well. Of course, um, both of these are national assets. And as well as, as you quite rightly say, the regulators uh, and the government wanting a stake uh, in how this goes forward as well. The shareholders are incredibly vociferous, uh, both banks, uh, about, of course, what they see as the future for what is, let's face it, a key industry for Switzerland as well. And there you can see uh, the performance so far this year and Credit Suisse has significantly uh, underperformed UBS. It should be mentioned as well that we have youngest management either in place or getting in place at these two as well. Credit Suisse, uh, Thomas Gottstein taking over only in February amidst the height of this crisis. And uh, of course, we have Ralph Harmers uh, joining only in November, uh, taking over from Sergio uh, Motti as well. So I think it's uh, a watch this space story. Thank you very much. Okay. Let's move on. Uh, Spain's CaixaBank is considering a move to purchase Bankia in a deal that would value its state-backed rival at €4 billion. This according to Reuters, which adds that the offer represents a premium of as much as 22% over Bankia's average share price. Both banks and Spain's economy ministry declined to comment. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com.
3: Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.